This is not your century. This is Not Your Century, where we celebrate the news and the news media of centuries gone by. I'm King Kaufman. October 18th, 1989. That was day two of the Loma Prieta earthquake and its aftermath, which included plenty of aftershocks. And it's day two of our special about the 30th anniversary of the quake on Not Your Century. You heard yesterday from civilians and first responders about their experience of the quake and the hours afterward. Today I've got memories from San Francisco Chronicle staffers, plus a couple of present staffers who weren't with the Chronicle back then. Kevin Fagan, who was with the Oakland Tribune, and me. I'll tell you about my experience of the quake. At the time, I was a cub copy editor at the San Francisco Examiner. Except for what I'm about to tell you about myself, all of what you're about to hear comes from the Chronicle and its 30th anniversary coverage of the quake. You can find that at sfchronicle.com. So here's my story, and I'll make it quick so we can get to the good stuff. I always say this is my I'm a California native story, because if you grew up in California when I did, you were taught that when an earthquake hit, you run to the nearest doorway. They don't say that anymore, but they used to. I'd worked a 5 a.m. shift at the examiner on the copy desk, and I was taking a nap in my apartment, which was in downtown Berkeley. I was waiting for the World Series game to start. I was going to watch it on TV. So I'm asleep when the earthquake hits. And when I woke up, I was standing in the doorway of my bedroom. I wrote it out, and it went on a little longer than usual, and there was one big jolt that kind of threw me up against the doorframe, and I thought, well, this is pretty big. I noticed it was a little past 5 o'clock, so I knew that the World Series broadcast would have started, so I went and turned on the TV. I always think it's fun when there's something on national TV from California and there's an earthquake. I like to hear what they're saying about it, especially if the people talking aren't from California, because sometimes they kind of freak out. So I think this will be fun. Nothing fell in my apartment. I still didn't know how big this earthquake was. There was that one big jolt, but that just might have meant that the earthquake was close, not necessarily that it was really big. So I turn on the TV and there's no stations. So, okay, I'm starting to think it's pretty big, but TV stations get thrown off the air pretty easily, it seems to me. So I turned on the radio and there were no radio stations all up and down the dial. Nothing. That's big. Radio stations, it seems to me, never get thrown off the air. So eventually, the TV stations came back on the air, and I watched that moment that I played on yesterday's episode, Channel 7 anchor Cheryl Jennings saying, oh my God, as she saw the collapsed Cypress structure. And I think I sat in front of my TV for the rest of the night watching the coverage. The Bay Bridge was closed for a month, but even BART was closed for a little while. So for the next few days... I had to drive to work by way of the San Rafael Bridge and then the Golden Gate Bridge and then all the way through San Francisco, which at least at first there was still a lot of blackouts. The power was out in a lot of neighborhoods. And so no matter how bad any commute of mine has ever been since then, I'll always know there were at least a few way back in the day that were worse than whatever's happening today. Kevin Fagan covers big events like this for the San Francisco Chronicle now. But in 1989, he was across the bay. I'm Kevin Fagan, and I'm a reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle. Back in 1989, I was a reporter and editor at the Oakland Tribune. So I was in the tower right in the middle of the quake when it hit at 5.04 p.m. October 17th. At the time, I was standing in the middle of the room with city editor John Race, and he and I rode the thing out like surfers because everyone else had taken desk spaces and were hiding under them. 
the thing shook like crazy. Uh, your arms were windmilling. Your feet were dancing back and forth trying to stay up. And at the end of it, we looked at each other and said, wow, what a great story. Well, it was and it wasn't because the journalist instinct to do stories of great drama and import, sure, that was there. But this was a heartbreaking, terrible story because when we got outside and saw what had really happened and as we learned what had really happened, it was awful. Uh, The thing I remember most is getting in my car, running around, looking at dazed people and shattered buildings and winding up at the Cypress Freeway. And that was a double-decker hulk of a thing that had collapsed on itself, trapping dozens of cars, scores of cars, lots of people. There were flames, there were screams, there was wreckage, there were smashed cars, people dead in them, people escaping from them, residents running up to help rescue people, uh, the fire crews showing up and bravely kind of climbing into the wreckage and the residents climbing into the wreckage. It was, it was a, it was terrible and it was huge because that thing was a giant freeway and the drama there went on for days. What I remember uh, most from that were, you know, singular scenes like Julio Baruman being cut out of the wreckage Uh, Dr. Betts had to cut his leg off to extract him from his car, and they had to chainsaw through a family friend to get to Julio. There were things like that that were just unimaginable in regular life. Uh, Across the bay in the marina, uh, a woman named Carol uh, was trapped in the wreckage, and her baby died in her arms. I've interviewed her a couple of times over the years. I've done a lot of anniversary stories on this thing. It just never leaves you. And covering the homeless afterwards uh, never left me. I'd always had an interest in homelessness and poverty, but that quake really deepened it because so many people were put into the street by their ruined homes and their lives were so shattered and needed so much to rebuild. Uh, It deepened the interest for me and that has never left. In fact, that whole quake has never left. It's always with you when you live through something like that, let alone report on it. And if you feel terrible, you stick it in the back of your head and you deal with it later because you got a job to do. But that quake has left imprints on all of us who lived through it. And I think those imprints will last for the rest of our lives. Nanette Asimov is a reporter at The Chronicle, as she was in 1989. She had a car at the paper that day and she knew how to speak Spanish, so she got dispatched down to Watsonville and Santa Cruz to cover the aftermath at the epicenter. And she's going to talk about something in this memory that's kind of sliding into history, the old landline phone and the way it kept right on working, even in a blackout. I remember October 17th, 1989. Uh, I was on the phone talking with somebody from Sacramento for some story when all of a sudden the newsroom began to shake And I dove under the desk, uh, just got off the phone, and under the desk, there were two other reporters there, Rick Del Vecchio and Jim Doyle. We looked at each other, we waited for the shaking to stop, and we slowly got out, and the newsroom was in a bit of chaos, trying to figure out who to send uh, where, um, what was going on, where was the epicenter, and... I got sent down to Santa Cruz um, and uh, with another reporter, Don Garcia, 
and we jumped in my car, made our way down there, and this was close to the epicenter, and our job was to talk with as many people as we could about what was going on. And I remember less about that than I do about just what it took to get our stories in the paper, because this was the days before cell phones and um, the days before the internet. And so I took my notebook filled with quotes from from people and got on a long um, a long line to for, to speak on the cell on the payphone. And so um, when it finally came to my turn to get on the phone, and this was behind maybe seven, eight other reporters, I uh, called the Chronicle and realized there's no way I can get through. The electric phone system that the Chronicle had just uh, installed was out of order, thanks to the earthquake. So um, instead of giving up my spot to the next reporter and getting on the back of the line again, I thought, well, maybe I can call across the street to the Fifth and Mission parking garage. And that's where I parked every day. So I knew those people and I called them up and their phone line was fine. Um, and I asked them, would they please take my nose and run across the street to the Chronicle? And they told me they would be happy to do that. But I saw very little of my stories in the paper in the next few days. So maybe that strategy ultimately did not work very well. But uh, it was um, my very first earthquake and one I will never forget. That's reporter Nanette Asimov. John Wildermuth mostly writes and edits about politics. You can sometimes hear him breaking down the debates on the Chronicle's It's All Political podcast. In 1989, he was in something else that's also kind of becoming a quaint memory like the landline phone, a newspaper bureau. On the day of the earthquake, shortly after five o'clock, I was uh, at my desk in uh, the county uh, building in San Mateo County in Redwood City, talking on the phone to my editor. When the ground started shaking, I grew up in San Francisco, so earthquakes are not a shocker to me, so I just figured I'd hold on a second and it would all be over. But when it kept shaking, I just spoke to the city desk and said, it's an earthquake, I'm going to get back to you, and moved under the nearby door jam. After it stopped shaking, I went out and took a look to see what was happening. Most obvious was there was a multi-ton piece of concrete decoration that was on the side of the county building. And it had broken off almost and was only being held on by safety cables that were put up there. And now we found the reason for those safety cables. But the key was, is the sheriff's deputies were out there telling everybody that was out in the plaza to get the heck out. Because if those safety cables went, concrete was going to come down. And if you weren't underneath it, if you were underneath it, you'd be squashed. But even if you weren't, that was going to shatter and send stuff everywhere. Luckily, it never did. And it's that piece of concrete is still hanging up in the county building. Well, my job there was to head out and talk to people uh, in the peninsula and find out what happened and ended up at the airport where the earthquake didn't damage the airport too much, but some of the hotels near the airport weren't so lucky. The Amfac Hotel, as a matter of fact, had a water tower on top crash through the building and end up in the lobby. Uh, no one was killed. There were a number of people injured. And Three years later, they just gave up and tore down the whole building, and it's now a parking lot. Across the street at the Hyatt Regency, people were huddled in the lobby just trying to figure out what they were going to do. No lights except emergency lights, and they spent the whole time out there. Uh, most of them spent the night sleeping on the lawn. 
And the next day, the whole building was red tagged, although the Hyatt Regency was fixed up and now is pretty much the way it was. We've come north from Santa Cruz to SFO, and we're going to keep traveling north and go to Candlestick Park, where we started yesterday's show. You remember the A's and the Giants were about to meet in Game 3 of the World Series, and Bruce Jenkins was there covering it for the Sporting Green. I had just gotten my column with the Sporting Green a few months before, and I was up in the upper deck when the earthquake hit. And the thing, really, I almost remember most is the sound coming before it hit us. It was this tremendous rumbling sound coming from the south, heading our way. And nobody could pinpoint what it was, except it was getting increasingly frightening as it got to us. And then next thing you know, we're all rocking and rolling up in the upper deck. And I remember I was standing right next to a guy named Lyle Spencer from the New York Post, who I went to high school with, played basketball with, wrote on the school paper with in Santa Monica way back in the 60s. And we're looking at each other like, we're going down. This is the big one. And it was pretty frightening to be unable to control your body and watching things sway back and forth. But it eventually calmed down and there was a lot of cheering and everybody thought, hey, you know, this is great. And then the reality hit home very soon when people came to realize what was going on around the Bay Area. Uh, We had uh, several people on the field talking to players and I took it upon myself to um, get back to the Chronicle office and transport a couple of very uh, important uh, sports writers Along with me, uh, Ken Rosenthal, the Baltimore Sun, and Tom Boswell, the Washington Post, they were very grateful to get a ride down 3rd Street to the Chronicle, which was a harrowing trip uh, in the darkness, and there were some pretty menacing characters out there, looked like they were bent on mayhem, and when we got to the city, I remember Tom Boswell saying, where are we? And we were in downtown San Francisco with no lights, and that, that was an experience in itself. So we met our way into the Chronicle building. Uh, for some reason, the th- we had a complete power outage here. Uh, The third floor was not accessible. We were all on the second floor with emergency power in extremely dim light, trying to hammer out stories on laptops from, you know, the War of 1812. And and it was really, really primitive. And as it turned out, we printed just an eight-page edition for the following morning. There was only one sports story, kind of a staff conglomeration. And the work that we did, uh, earnest as it was, didn't appear then. Uh, The following day, we were still dealing with a power outage, and uh, a bunch of us managed to get some, some pieces into a 16-page uh, chronicle that appeared uh, the following day. Uh, and that was, uh, it was, it was definitely an, an adventure trying to, to pull off something like this with basically no assets. But, you know, we were all rewarded that we were able to do something and, you know, basically felt lucky to be all in one piece uh, as opposed to some of the horrors that were unfolding in, in the Bay Area. Another thing I remember is that there was quite a delay between uh, games two and three, uh, when it finally did resume a candlestick and the A's took it upon themselves. Tony LaRusso said, let's go down to Arizona where we can just uh, train and forget about all this and not deal with all the, the hassles that are going on here. And the Chronicle sent me down there. And after, uh, checking in with the, uh, with the team and getting some quotes, I repaired to the pink pony, which is the, uh, by far the best baseball bar at the time where all the great players, managers, executives, uh, held court set up on the bar with my computer and uh, hammered out a story from there. So (laughs) things were getting a little bit lighter, but uh, in in, in the end, uh, it it wasn't any like anything like any World Series I'd experienced. Uh, As always with an earthquake, it tended to uh, tamper a bit with real life. And here's one more for you. Sam Whiting writes arts features for the Chronicle, but here he's going to talk about his experience, not as a reporter, but as just a regular person trying to get home to his apartment in the Marina District. I'm Sam Whiting. I'm a Chronicle reporter, and I was on duty at Candlestick Park on the day of the Loma Prieta earthquake. 
It took uh, me until the next morning to get home all the way across the city to the apartment I just moved into on Divisadero Street in the Marina District. It uh, When I got down there, the area had been completely cordoned off by the military police coming out of the Presidio of San Francisco. You had to prove to the guy at the gate that you were a resident in order to get through the barricade, which was at the corner of Chestnut and Visadero. I lived two blocks down, and two further blocks down, I could see the evidence of the fires the night before. There were buildings that had fallen forward. They were out, partially out in the street. There were firemen hosing down the buildings still. There were uh, huge piles of rubble covering part of the street. And as I walked around the neighborhood, I saw sidewalks buckled up. And for the first time, I saw sand, an indication that this was all on landfill, which had not been a concern to anybody moving into the marina prior to the earthquake. After the earthquake, it became a huge concern. Uh, Whereas the Apartments closest to the water had been most desirable before. Now everybody wanted to be closer to Bedrock, which was back toward Chestnut Street and up toward Lombard. Uh, The other uh, clear recollection is uh, two or three days after the earthquake, it rained. A heat wave gave way to rain, and everything turned to muck. And as I sat in my apartment, which was still without power or water, Looking out the window, I could see people pushing shopping carts with all their worldly belongings that they've been able to rescue out of their apartments before they were red-tagged and condemned. I want to thank my co-workers, Kevin Fagan, Nanette Asimov, John Wildermuth, Bruce Jenkins, and Sam Whiting. You can hear them and a bunch of other people telling their stories as part of the Chronicle's 30th anniversary package about the Loma Prieta earthquake at sfchronicle.com. And we're not quite done with the earthquake. I'll talk to you on Monday. This has been Not Your Century, a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. Audrey Cooper, Editor-in-Chief. Get great journalism today at sfchronicle.com. I'm King Kaufman. Talk to me on Twitter at King underscore Kaufman. We now return you to your century.